how you work with government. And there's the Minister of Health, who comes and goes every year or two or three, makes some of the big decisions. And then there's that other guy in the room. You know, the one who's there year after year, working behind the scenes. The one who's actually going to do the technical work needed to make change that lasts. That's who we're talking to today. You're listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This is a podcast about technology, poverty, and health. It's about the people trying to find a better way to do good. Today on the show, we'll be speaking with Dominic Atwim from Ghana Health Services. Dominic, as we'll hear, is a man instrumental in the story of DHIS2 in Ghana, arguably one of the most widely adopted pieces of software in Ghana Health Services. Dominic is a health information systems expert within Ghana Health Services. Ghana Health Services is the part of the Ghanaian government responsible for the actual management of health facilities in the country. Specifically, he's within the Policy, Planning, Monitoring, and Evaluation Unit, PPME. He'll refer to this acronym frequently throughout the show. Because PPME is charged with monitoring and evaluation in Ghana Health Services, that means it also has oversight on digital health deployments across the country. Dominic has worked on or has visibility into any digital health project in the country that has gotten traction with the government. And so it's particularly interesting to hear his perspective on digital health. In today's conversation, we talk about what it's like as government of Ghana over the years, seeing all these digital health projects come and go. Dominic talks about what it's like being the guys that other development programs throw software at saying, here, maintain this. And he really gets to the truth behind the hype of some of these development projects. While we touch on many of the different digital health deployments in Ghana, we dive a bit deeper on the story of DHIS2, a health information software that was adopted due to key decisions that Dominic made. In Ghana, DHIS2 has been rebranded as DIMS2 for the website or eTracker for the smartphone application. I get to ask him all the questions I've been dying to ask him about what DHIS2 got right that other interventions didn't. We pick up Dominic's story in 2009. He's just spent a brief stint with some other organizations, and he's returned to Ghana Health Services to speak with the director of his division, PPME. Fortunately, that same director that was there when I left was there. I mean, his his disease now, Dr. Frank Yonato, he was a one great mm. person. I mean, he was the lead person who created PPME from the ministry oh. to the Ghana Health Service. So um, he said, Dominic, this is what I want you to do. These are the challenges. You've told me a lot. We've had a lot of discussion. <laughs> Can you do an evaluation of our HMIS? HMIS, referring to Health Management Information System. What I want you to do is, Look, scope the country and then do some evaluation and tell us huh. what you think we should do. So, yes, we did. We had a meeting. Then I mean, one needs to look at what can be done and all that. And that is where quite the challenge. my key recommendation was we need to move to a web-based portal to see what we can do to address the national health system. So huh. 2009. Wait, that was, that was your recommendation? You mean you wanted you to do the evaluation? to look at the information management needs, and you came back with the recommendation to upgrade? Yeah, definitely. So How did I not know that? It was an access-based system. It was called DIMS. So when we moved to the DHIS2 platform, we called it DIMS2. So more or less like moving from DIMS1 to DIMS2. 
So DEMS 1 was an access-based, and then DEMS 2 was a, a DHIS2 platform-based. I had the opportunity to sit in a conference in Geneva in 2009. It was a, a connected zone meeting, and one of these digital health, where you have all these um, tech gurus around who present systems, you evaluate and all that. And um, the DHIS2 was presented. I, I went to Sierra Leone, looked at it. It was being piloted there. And I said, oh, well, this could help us fix our current situation. Interesting. So um, I came and as part of my recommendation, told them that this is what I think we need to do and this is where we need to move on. With. What was the moment that convinced you that DHS2 was going to be the system? I'm sure you're looking at a bunch of different options. You had a, you know, all, there's always inertia. It's always easier to stay on the existing system just because you have it and everyone knows it. What would you say was the the decision point, you know, the moment where you said, okay, we need to change and we're going to change onto this system. The data warehousing principles. So I was looking at all the systems available and not could offer any data warehousing principle to us. There were a lot. I mean, OpenMRS was there, but that was purely clinical. Ghana then had a lot of parallel systems. So you have reproductive health, will have their system, TB has their system, HIV has their system, practically NTD has their systems. I mean, so you had practically a lot of silos sitting. So there are. you don't want to deploy another system that will not have the platform or the capacity to envelope all the other systems. Based on the current need and what the DHIS2 could do, and based on me seeing it first and what it could do and whatever that can be done, uh, we thought that this is what we need to. And then I think there was a push from CDC. One road, they're trying to push an ART system for just HIV. So uh, they had some money. So, uh, and I remember we telling them that they either support us to get this DHIS2 or they take their ART system away. I mean, that was a power <laughs> calling the shots at then. I mean, we're poor. We don't have anything. Yeah. And that sounds hard because DHIS2 was not an ART specific system at the time, I think. Yes. Like, I'm sure CDC had a different system they wanted. And you yes. told them, no, you wanted DHIS2. Is that right? The issue wasn't really of the platform. The issue was really of what the functionality of the system, what the system can support us to. And I've always said that. It is, it is not more of the name of the platform. If tomorrow Oracle can be an open source on worldwide, it will never be, but can provide that kind <laughs> of scale-up platform, <laughs> that kind of scale-up and the reporting picture platform, and the country decide that, hey, we now have a better, bigger platform that can support our needs. Why not? So I've always yeah. maintained that it's, it, it's not the name of the, the software, but it's the platform that can support the needs of the country. Fully agreed. I mean, technology is always changing. You know, what's, what's top of the game today is going to be at the bottom of the stack tomorrow. And that's part of what we need to recognize in working with technology. So your approach is absolutely correct. You know, it's about what's the best solution? What are the needs? What is the, what is the best solution for that now? And let's make sure the door is open to stay with the best solution, whatever that is in future. Perfect. I mean, and that was, uh, that was it. So um, I've been in um, several meetings where, I mean, we need to recommend, I'm, I'm, I'm an advisor to the better learning networks that have uh, better data learning network, BLN. So there are a lot of meetings that I join and I mean, you need to discuss various types of software that are available and all that. And, and sometimes the focus more move onto specific software names, which I think it shouldn't be, but we should look at what what 
the platform is able to provide or what can the platform provide i mean to make sure that it addresses your needs uh, i mean if a platform yes you could look at its scalability if it yes if it can if uh, sustainability if uh, it's approaching the method that is needed the maintenance and the management i mean these are key areas that normally we tend not to look at and and i think maybe we'll come to that area and that is what has affected a lot of um, beautiful 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 projects that we've done in this country and we've seen it all gone um, to dust yeah huh we need to talk about that more but dominic just before we get to that on on this change that you brought out on the change of the health information management system i think anyone working in health in ghana today can see how that has lasted you know uh, dims to e tracker um like those systems are you know, they're instantiate, like everyone understands that this is the system of, of Ghana Health Services now. What, why would you say that that worked effectively? What was it about that approach compared to all the other beautiful ideas, as you mentioned, that have gone to dust? What was it about DIMS2 or DHIS2? I think first and foremost, I think leadership and governance was key. How so? Dr. Nyonato supported it fully. And to be honest, there were even some resistance within among the, the folks within the division that I work with, the Center for Health Information Management. Otherwise known as CHIM, the Center for Health Information Management, a unit within the directorate of PPME, within Ghana Health Services. I hope you're getting the hang of these acronyms by now. A few came on board, the others joined later. It got to a point that everybody told us that we we're going to fail. We started the preparatory phase in 2009, and we went live in 2012, 1st of April. 1st of April, because we knew why we did that. 1st of April was an April fool. So everybody thought that we were going to fail. <laughs> and I remember oh, we no. got to a point, uh, we discussed that we needed somebody with a heavy face. I was then young to come and help <laughs> us push this thing. And that is when Dr. Fusu was identified. He was then the district director of health services in um, and and and, and sent in one of the districts, and um, the the division had a discussion with him, and then managed to convince him to come and join us. And then he also picked it up, nice. uh, pushed it forward. So the leadership thing nice. is very key. So everybody was saying, "Let's go pilot." And yeah, Dims Two yeah. was the only system in Ghana that didn't have any dedicated funding. We deployed it pro bono. Really? We knew, yes. I mean, we didn't have any dedicated funding. Really? Wait, out of Ghana Health Services' own budget? Out of staff, out of the divisional staff's own budget. Wow. But really? How did that work? Because we knew what this was going to give us. People were, huh. I mean, people knew what this could do to us, could move us into. But even, I'm sure everyone, everyone already had jobs and they had work to do, and you have to learn a new system. You have to take the software, you have to install it. There's training. Like, how did, I, I'm I'm flabbergasted, you know. Like <laughs> it seems like everything requires funding these days. I'm just flabbergasted that you were able to roll that out without without dedicated funding from somewhere. No, we didn't have any dedicated funding. Wow. So the initial training and everything, you have officers at the Center for Health Information Management. At a point, I even have to sit back and allow them to learn. So so the good thing that we had was we had support from a PhD student. And that is the good thing about the community, open source community, where one or two PhD students from University of Oslo came to support us. 
from the beginning, from day one, we told them that we don't want anybody to come and sit here and develop a system for Ghana. We want that person to come and work with our people here so that before that person leaves, skills and knowledge transfer has been done. So for almost two, three years, we had core persons from the University of Oslo sitting with us and um, working together. I mean, we worked oh. for two, three years. I mean, um, no support yeah. whatsoever. We moved to the, uh, these guys who moved to the district to do training tests and everything. And we decided that oh, we're not going to do a pilot. So DIMS 2 was never a pilot. Huh. DIMS 1 was already out there. So there was no point doing a pilot. So from the day huh. one, the only support we had was a server hosting support, where CDC said that, okay, because they want an ERT system, they could support that with the server, the bandwidth and, and other things. That was the only support. When it comes to wow. initial training, initial development process, configuration, development of the data set, rationalizing the data set and everything, everything was pro bono. Dominic, I feel like this story needs to be told more often. You know, I, I think something about the the get up and go nature of it, something about the learning of it. Like, I, I just don't hear that many stories like this, <laughs> uh, you know, and I've been I've been in digital health for ages and I, I love it. I think that's incredible. So thank you for sharing how it all came together. But I guess one, one question I had is as you were ramping up and learning all these systems and building your databases and such, did you ever have to worry about staff turnover? You know, like if someone comes in and they spend a lot of time training and teaching someone how to use a particular database or web technology, and particularly as we talk about like a three to five to 10 year project building something, how do you know that they're going to stick around and not just go work for MTN or Vodafone? The interesting thing about the work we do is the recognition. I mean, it's not always about the money, but I mean, you being recognized and you having that self-recognition uh, and that self-respect that, oh, at least you've done something for him and look. Some of these guys, my colleagues, sometimes go to a district, a, a village that have uh, no lights, nothing, and they see a CHO who has a tablet and is able to analyze her data and other things. How do you feel? Do you have some sense of belongingness? I mean, some sense of importance that, hey, you've you've contributed to humanity or you've contributed something that will support humanity, whatever that uh, may be. So it's, 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 we've never, we, we did plan that, yes, there'll be attrition and we've had attrition. We have people who have left. Mm-hmm. I mean, the it one happens. who was leading, the leading them, one left to other agencies, USID uh, uh, partner agencies that they worked with uh, some left to further their education. But the core, the good thing is that we had a core. And that is always a risk. If you look at my risk assessment for the entire uh, team, you realize that the human resource bit is something that we need to continue building on. So that is something that countries don't have. So even though we have that local capacity, it still looks like we rely more on one or two or three or four people to get um, certain work done within our health sector. And and those are things that um, we need to see how we address that. But um, we've, we've managed to rely on um, the core guys that are around. They've been around since the beginning. Um, a few have left, a few have come to join. I mean, now we have technical guys from 
the malaria programs, TB program, HIV programs all supporting the open communities out there. Yeah, yeah. And and it's also true, like even if you if you were to use some other platform or some other tool, like you often it ends up being some small group of people, you know, maybe they're in Ghana, maybe they're in London, maybe they're somewhere else. Unless you're going for like a Microsoft or an Oracle system. But at the end of the day, whether like whatever organization is doing it, on the inside, you find often there's a small number of hard workers that are, you know, pouring their heart into this system and making it succeed. So I, I definitely don't think that's unique to, to, to Ghana Health Services, um, that aspect of it. Dominic, can you talk a bit about some projects that haven't gone as well, or maybe one project that hasn't gone as well, and what you've taken from that experience? I will not say the programs did not go well. It is the scale up that never goes well. I mean, all the projects that have not been scaled up, the report from those projects were perfect and good to perfect. I mean, these are all projects that should have scaled. I mean, SMS for Life, eBlood, I mean, the big one, Mutech, early warning systems. These are all projects that the deliverables were so key and they were all wonderful projects that if it had gone to scale, would have been wonderful. But this key project could not go to scale because to sustain it was a problem. So let me, I mean, and I always use uh, Motec, mobile technology for health as an example. Huge millions of dollars was used. I mean, Bill Gates, look, a project that even made Bill Gates travel to Ghana to go to one of the remotest villages in Ghana. Wow. That should tell, yes, I mean, let's Motec, Bill Gates in Ghana and other things. That should tell you that that project was a success. But we couldn't scale because mm. it, there was no way that the health sector could support that because it was expensive. It was just the method mm. and approach. So most mm. of the time, the method and the approach of implementation fails us. If you deploy a digital health solution, um, because of the because most of these funded projects are resort oriented, they end up um, what do you call it? Employing extra people who get paid well and who will do the work to get the results. Forgetting that, you already have an existing health worker force who might not be receiving 50% or 70% of what you are paying these new guys. <sighs> and the moment the project ends, they leave. I mean, how are they going to run that project? I mean, it's not. So, and that is what why maybe Dems2 and Nitraka continue to survive because it is already integrated into what we do. We don't have any staff being paid on each tracker, apart from the trade, a few trading allowances or per diem or TNT that they get. That's it. Nobody gets paid monthly subsistence for being a, pro- a trainer, a program manager. I don't get paid monthly on managing or supporting the team for deploying HMI story, apart from my normal government pay salary. Yes, of course, I get to travel, I get to. I get DSAs to travel and do my work and other things. DSA stands for Daily Subsistence Allowance. This is the money that's given to someone to attend a training just to cover their cost of transport, food, and other basic allowances. We've been able to integrate the, the, the system into the core uh, 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 abstractor of GHS. The other system that failed did not. That is why it failed. I mean, if you are able to institutionalize a product, then uh, it, it works. I mean, but if you don't, I mean, that, that is where the gaps, um, and that, that is when you can, it cannot go to scale. 
No, I mean, that's fascinating, Dominic, particularly the DIMS2 got started uh, with all the effort and the zero funding to, to get started, except for the hosting fees, as you mentioned. Um, and then we look at these other systems and, and you know, they, as you said, put in a lot of extra manpower and resources into it. I, I think if, I mean, if we were to talk to one of those, one of those different projects and, you know, say, what, what are you doing here? Um, they might say they're doing something new and so they want to iron out the kinks. They want the software to be correct. They're piloting, you know, that happens a lot. <laughs> but the hope is that they can put up a system that is a little bit more self-sufficient. You know, like once you install Windows or once you install, once you're, once you're running on Gmail, um, you don't need to spend as much time administering the system as when you first build it. I think that's what a lot of those organizations might say. How does that fall apart in practice, Dominic? I know you've seen it fall apart. How does that? How does that narrative not work in the real world? And I've I've I have this presentation slide that I always say that when it comes to e-registries, digitizing health, and other things, um, there is a big big difference between piloting and scaling up. The approach and the methods mm. that are used for initial phase one or phase two should be properly evaluated and should be totally different from scaling up. Because when you are scaling up the dynamism, everything changes. And that has been mm. yeah. the, 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 the pivotal problem that needs to be looked at. At maintenance of devices, mm. who does that? Is it, does the government have to? Yeah. I mean, you can have the money and the support to. So for replacement of devices, how do you resolve that? Well, you want voice messages to go to pregnant women and mothers with children with care regimes. What? I mean, Ghana has over 200 languages. Can you pay for that <laughs> voice? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, you yeah. want text messages. All right? If you do <laughs> just English and uh, key yeah. languages, that is not going to work because it means that you are limited to certain groups of people. Yes, the mobile penetration in Ghana is good, but how many people have time to read their messages and now um, their text messages to know what they, they are? So there should be a holistic approach to this. And I mean, we have maintained, and look, the Instagram that we use have all that functionality, but we know it's expensive, so we've not enabled that. Let's strengthen the 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 working relationship between the CHO and the community volunteer. A community volunteer knows every single pregnant woman or every single child who have given birth in the community. If you strengthen the relationship between the CHO and then the community volunteer, well, just a simple close result group phone. You don't have to pay that huge sums of money to hold a phone or MTN. Nice. I mean, the community volunteer just has to call the CHO and you get try you track this pregnant mother. It's so simple. Yeah, exactly. It's so simple and it works, you know, just create a group using a messaging platform they already have. So simple. I mean, so why do you then want to go pay huge sums of money to an, uh, an aggregator who, whose um, platform may not even work and the messages might not even go to these people? Well, you can say bulk <laughs> SMS, but bulk SMS, how many people read them? It doesn't work. I mean, so... <laughs> Those are some yeah. of the things. I mean, we've, we've even explored the possibility of letting, look, there are other income people who get pregnant and will want to receive their own messages and other things. Mm. And, and that can even sustain a particular program and a project. I love, Dominic, that your emphasis on the difference between piloting and scaling. That is so true. And I think it's not well 
understood. Like people think I'm done the pilot, you know, here we go. Let's, let's scale tomorrow. Um, but it's, it's false, you know, maintaining the phones, figuring out the payment, the language, the translations, all those things. It's a huge effort, even after you've had a successful pilot. And a lot of the thinking sort of ends right at that point. But, but Dominic, my question for you is, uh, like, there's so many things about the DIMS 2 story that sounds very unique. Like looking, looking ahead, you know, guessing at some of the other work and initiatives that people are working on. Would you, would you say that the only path to success is getting someone within Ghana Health Services to build the system themselves? Or are there other ways to ensure the local ownership and adoption of, of future innovations? Not at all, Rowena. What we're saying is that, no, PPPs are perfect. By PPP, Dominic is referring to public-private partnerships. In this case, he's referring to the ways in which Ghana Health Services can work with private sector technology companies. But what we are saying is that what are the structures in place to make sure that if a private person is coming to work with the service, people will know how to maintain it. I mean, we, we still have uh, PPPs mm. coming in working with us, even with DIMS2 and um, tracker We'll still get people to come uh. and support when, they, when you need to do some integration with other systems and all that. Yes, but the right. core part is that you don't want to be sitting in Ghana and calling somebody in outside Ghana, asking him for a password to a system, or there's a new data set. How do I upload that data set? I mean, we have a situation in one of yeah. our hospitals where the entire Ugh. system cannot even generate a monthly report and calling the vendor who works, it says you have to pay $20,000 and all that. I mean, Ugh. who signs those contracts? What goes into all that? So those are a bit, bit and pieces of things that look, PPP is the way to go. And I keep saying that the, the health sector is not a profit-oriented profit, um, organization. We don't make money in the health sector. So you cannot go and employ programmers and uh, designers. and I mean, you can't. There's no way. So what do you do? Build the capacity of the people. If it's a nurse, if it's a health informatician and other things. I mean, build their capacity to be able to manage the system somehow with the support of whoever that this vendor is. And let the vendor understand that there is skills and knowledge transfer. I mean, if I'm a programmer, why should I come and sit and develop one system for DHS and do nothing? You can't pay me. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that is a fact. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. PPP will still be worked at. But when that has been done, what kind of capacity building policies or structures are in place to ensure that the users of the system have some control over the system to ensure the sustainability of the system long term? I mean, most times you hear that you get an email or a letter saying that, oh, we've done this, we've done that, and we're about to close, so we want to transition to GHS. You transition for who to maintain the system? I mean, these people were not part of the system from the beginning, so how do they, how does the system get transitioned and get maintained? So from the beginning, mm. if you think that there will be a transition of the system maintenance and management, then that has to be factored in from the beginning so that those who will be required to manage it and maintain it long-term are part of the process from the beginning, development, even the conceptualization of the system and everything going up. So that when mm. you go to the point of transition, then they know that, yes, oh, okay, now we can manage it going forward. But if you don't, mm. and then two, three years, 
Um, people are being paid huge amounts of money. Uh, it's not even about the money, mm-hmm. but now the project is funded yeah. now, and we say, oh, we want to transition it to, we want to transition it to the health service. Why are you transitioning it to? I mean, <laughs> it means that it will fail. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. I think there's there's certain things like when you know who you're going to send it to, you might make certain decisions, even about the technologies that you use or. Or if you don't know, then you make some strange assumptions, like we're, we're going to rely on this kind of infrastructure, or that kind of process existing, and then you dig into it and it, it does or it doesn't exist. And, and so those are just kind of some of the things you can get ahead of um, with a little bit of forward planning and not just dump it on Ghana Health Services. Dominic, I, th- I think there's one topic area where this kind of tension plays itself out quite a lot, which is the question of local hosting. Um, you know, there's a lot of applications out there that say, hey, I want to build some innovation. I want it to be used in Ghana. And I'd like to host it on some server somewhere in the United States or the United Kingdom. And then there's a lot of reasons not to do that as well. Can you speak a bit about how that kind of tension has arisen in the programs that you've seen and what, what the pros and cons are that you've been navigating? Okay, so I, I can even start from our DHI to platform. Yeah, let's do that. I mean, when we started, people have a misconception about cloud hosting and local hosting server, et cetera. So um, we did an evaluation of all the companies that were in Ghana that had co-location services, bandwidth services. 95% Mm. of them were getting the bandwidth through third parties. Third Mm. parties means outside the country. I mean, so if you go and put your server... At, uh, I don't want to mention any companies name. At a particular <laughs> company's co-location service, okay. the bandwidth he gets the bandwidth from another country. Anyway, it's, so it's practically oh. the same thing. So we did an evaluation. Yes, Ghana Health Service don't have a proper data center for now, at least to support mm-hmm. a backup service. I mean, if mm-hmm. they want to, fine. But I would personally not advise for that because they are look. EU regulations on data hosting Mm -hmm. against Mm -hmm. African Union regulation on data hosting. Which one will you pick? I I, I guess I would lean towards the EU one. GDPR, it's very strict. Thank you, because it's very strict (laughs) and and they make sure that things implemented to the letter. So if you tell me that I'm procuring a dedicated cloud server in Ireland, which, Mm -hmm. and it belongs to GHS, we have access to everything. And we've signed a contract mm. with them and we can see them when they go. Which one is much more safer than getting a company here in Ghana? And the price is like right, uh, 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 um, 70% what you pay for in Ghana. What do you do? I think that it's a misconception. And I think we need to do much more work mm. about what clouds can do to companies. What We need to talk much more about that because we've come a long way. I mean... Um, if, if you're buying a physical server, it means you're going to change it every three years. You need security, yeah. you need um, access and everything 24 hours, power, electricity, yeah. bandwidth. Air conditioning, the staff to do it. Thank you. The government is doing well building a data center for all agencies and all that. Yes. Mm-hmm. But can the bandwidth be guaranteed? 24-hour bandwidth, can that be guaranteed? I mean, sometimes in the offices, right. you don't even have internet to work with. I mean, so how much more <laughs> trying to have a bandwidth to support a server to make sure that users get connected and all that. So um, I think it's a fair idea. If you have the money and you want to do your own co-location service and have your own data center, why not? You can do that. I mean, 
that that should be wow. done. But hey, um, I'll always go for cloud steps. I don't think we have anything to worry about. But <laughs> I, I've done I've done all the evaluation. And I think it is far far better and far cheaper and far secure than most of the uh, local hosting that we want to do. Yeah, that is my opinion anyway. Dominic, it's great, great to hear you articulate that. I think it's like you know, you've you've really hit the nail on the head on that one. And I don't I don't hear a lot of people speaking on this issue as clearly as you just did. So I agree. I would love to <laughs> I would love to to get this message out there more because I, I think on on the other hand, uh, there are a lot of countries, um, maybe not Ghana, um, where they say you know it's it's our data. We want to keep it in country. Um, so that, you know, we can protect it against another country holding it against us or using our, our citizens' information. But, 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 but there are so many safeguards against that. You know, if it's encrypted, if it's fully encrypted, then even if Ireland declares, I don't know, if Ireland declares war on some random country, they still won't be able to access the data because they won't have the secure key. Um, and so there's, there's certain things that, that you'd understand looking at it from the technology perspective. So thank you for sharing those words. And I think we need to do more, more on that. Yeah, I fully agree. I was just saying we need to do more aware. I think people are not aware of this and, and possibly maybe the, the, the policymakers or the politicians need to be oriented more on that area because a lot of the times mm. they are aware and Ghana data is sitting in Ireland. No, it's not sitting. Mm. It's just a cloud service that is sitting. I mean, do you know where your other data is sitting? Uh, yeah, your you're email. on Facebook, you know your emails and other things. Do you know where it sits? I mean, then yeah. none of us will be on Google email. And um, uh, um, I mean, yeah, anyway, that's that. Yeah, Dominic, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to you later on in life and and get your help in promoting this message. But that's another story. <laughs> Shall we switch over to the rapid fire questions? The first question: is If you have any advice for young professionals. Folks who are just starting out their career in, in health and thinking maybe technology might be an interesting thing to try out. Do you have any guidance for young people? Yes. Um, what I'll say is you need to understand the ecosystem that you want to go in. It's very, very important. Mm. Spend some time. Sometimes just spend some time. I mean, shuttle your time. Even if a day or two, you can go and sit in a facility. I mean, that is where all the work starts from. Go spend some time with the community health nurse and nurse or a doctor and his consultant. I mean, just to understand what they do down there a little bit, especially the primary health care, UAC goals, everything. Go and sit with the CHO. I mean, I'm probably maybe I'm talking in terms of Ghana, but it applies to a lot of the African countries and Asian countries. If you Absolutely. want to survive in this area, if you want to make an impact, then you need to understand the product that you want to bring in. So have time, research, evaluate, go down there in the community, sit with them and understand how these community health nurses work. Understand how data get guarded, comes to the sub-district, comes to the district. Understand yes. the use of the tools that they use. And you'll be fine. I mean, that's what I'll say. I mean, if you do, nice. if you do those things, <laughs> you'll be fine. Um, the rest, awesome. you just have to apply the little things that you've learned and, and then you'll be fine. And that has been <laughs> the gap. I've met a lot of people who have no idea what community systems are and how the community healthcare system works. And I mean, it's been a challenge. And sometimes explaining mm. things even becomes a challenge. So those, those are mm. the big, big gaps. 
Thank you. I love that message. Dominic, do you have any requests for donors who might be listening to this podcast related to digital health? Well, depending upon which side I'm talking to, we need to support countries to make the right decisions. Uh, We need Hmm. to support countries to be able to sustain the gains that they have. They need to Hmm. support countries to sustain the gains that they have. I mean... Yeah. It sounds like even the experience you had going to the Connected Health Conference where you first got exposure to DHIS2 and OpenMRS and all of them, that had a pretty significant effect on on you and then on Ghana by extension. And so that's a great opportunity to make available to other officials. Yes. And and instead of recommending things that, I mean, systems might work in other countries. I haven't seen an evaluation of country systems as we speak in Africa, where countries have been graded per their digitization pursuits or agenda. Um, now you sit down and you hear a system has been used in Palestine, so we should try it in Ghana or in Philistine, uh, in Bangladesh, so maybe it will work in Ghana. No, these are two separate countries with different systems at different levels. So probably yeah. the partners yeah. out there, maybe commission a yearly or uh, two yearly uh, collation, or I mean, some form of observatory that tells everybody the kind of system being used and where countries are with the yeah with their current uh, digitization agenda. Yes, the WHO eHealth Observatory does something like that, but is is it updated well enough for people to know what is happening in countries and all that? Um, Yeah, yeah. You know, this is in some ways a question that you've been answering throughout throughout our conversation. Um, But if you have anything to add in terms of common implementation mistakes or misguided approaches in digital health, uh, the, you know, you see people making these same mistakes over and over again. Surprisingly, it looks like countries are repeating the same mistakes and the same things are coming back again. I mean, <laughs> uh, partners uh, and funders are pushing programs to introduce parasystems and in, for the sake of integration, <laughs> duplicating efforts that are being done and all that. Um, if there is a system yeah. that can perform the same thing, why do you introduce another system and say, oh, then you can integrate, you can integrate. That is not what integration hmm. means. I mean, it's, 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 it looks like the same mistakes of silos and parasystem. Some countries are going back to that and that needs to be looked at. Yeah. I like how you mentioned it. You, you mentioned it, you mentioned earlier, even just understanding the groundwork before you start building. You know, sometimes yeah. you land in a country and you're like, I have a great solution. And you don't take the time to realize there's already one there that can do 90% of what you're trying to do. Maybe not 100%, but 90%. Uh, and why not build upon that? Yes, exactly. I mean, Rowena, I mean, that, 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 that is what, what, what is happening. Um, um, I don't want to mention names here, but there are countless of examples that are coming up and you have no idea what to, what to do about it, just to say it go on. And I mean, we recently helped a system to get integrated into a national system, even though the national system is able to do the same thing. Hmm. Only for that <laughs> system now, uh, for us to be told that that system is not going to be used and, and that system needs oh, to be moved onto a different platform. So those are the bits and pieces of the thing that you, <sighs> you, you, for the sake of integration, all kinds of systems get pushed into the throat of countries to adopt. 
I mean, the standard and the guidelines, the country strategic plan is key. If country's e-health strategy or digital health strategic plan can be pushed to the latter, I think that would be a fantastic idea to help do this. Nice. And I, I like the point you made there about how integration isn't always the answer. Like, it's great. But if you're actually deploying duplicate systems, like it's, it's a bit more than just an integration problem. I think that's an excellent point. Two last questions. Um, one is if you have any reading, you know, a resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in the industry. Yes, I mean, the, 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 the DHIS2 Academy, the GitHubs, um, the DHIS2 Launchpad, um, it keeps you updated with things. I belong to a lot of um, other e-health organizations that, um, I mean, you get a podcast, um, certain reports and certain write-ups on what, what is happening. The Better Learning Networks is, is one, mm. one big thing where, I mean, just last week we had a webinar. I, facilitated, I, I moderated a webinar on um, um, the, the impact of COVID and, and all that. Uh, I mean, nice. so... There's a lot yes. of them. I don't think I can mention all of them on the ground. But hey, um, yes, the Telehealth um, African uh, Conference, the HIMSS uh, Porter from the US. Yes, a whole lot of them that uh, I, I, I can, they come into my mail. But yes. <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite the reading list, Dominic. You're going to keep me busy for a while. <laughs> Last question is if you want to recommend a book, a blog, or a podcast just from personal interest or for fun. I mean, I love reading John Grisham books. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Which... You know that Grisham, um, uh, course, the Grisham drama books. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the runaway jury. I mean, that's a good one. Uh, books, books, books that distresses you. A Time to Kill. <laughs> I mean, based on Samuel Jackson's movie. Um, oh, yeah, man. I mean, I mean that, <laughs> and if you are down a bit and you are a football fan, just read Peter Drury's quotes on football huh. uh, commentator. And I'm a Chelsea fan too as well. So, and we won the Champions League recently. So, just to rub that. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Dominic. We've covered so much ground in this conversation. I really appreciate you opening up and just sharing some of the wisdom that you've picked up over the years. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rowena, and you're always welcome. Towards the end of our chat, Dominic revealed that after 12 years working in the public service, he's switching things up. He's going to join the World Health Organization. Those guys need all the talent they can get right now, and they could use someone with years of on-the-ground experience like Dominic has. If you like what you heard on the show today, tell a friend. And if you didn't, let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Aid Evolve. See you next time.